0: There can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program, so please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing, or pop on some headphones, and that way no one can get offended but you. You're listening to Rights for Festival, made possible by the support of Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales. We are very proud to present the first ever StoryFest, 2019, held in Milton. Rights for Festivals and StoryFest would like to give a huge thanks to the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group, who have generously provided permission for us to use their traditional welcome to country as our theme music for this podcast. We are honoured to have the privilege. Thank you. In this session, Inga Simpson talks to John Blay about searching out the Bundian Way. Before we head into this session, which I have to tell you was one of my favourite, unfortunately, the very beginning of this record got distorted somehow which makes me very sad because it means that we can't bring you the amazing acknowledgement of country that John and Inga did leading into this session. So we enter just at the end of that conversation you'll hear and the rest of it is just as special.
1: It's a way of acknowledging those thousands of generations of people who've been before and whose stories we were part of, we are part of and... And I, I love this kind of acknowledgement of the country. So to get back to me, your question. <laughs> How it all began. Was um, I trained in law. and was working with a firm of solicitors in Sydney and they said, well, it's time you should come and join the partnership. And I said, oh, no, hang on, hang on. I, I've always wanted to be a writer and I think... and." And I've always wanted to try that, and that's a bit of a worry for me. And they said, well, look, take three months off and then come and join us. And I, <laughs> I went away and I got – I won a poetry prize. I was commissioned for a major work by the ABC, and I just never went back, and I'm glad I've never been back. But the qualification helps you filling out the forms, (laughs) the endless forms you have to (laughs) fill out when you're trying to do anything. And I lived in Sydney until I was fortunate enough to move to Bermagui. And when I was in Bermagui, I was blown away by going into town and meeting people from Wallaga Lake who would play gum leaf. And often there'd be five or six, seven people and they'd play these five, seven-part harmonies on Gumleaf. And it was some of the most amazing music I've ever heard. And I got to be friendly with a lot of these people and helped. We worked together during the struggle to have Mumbula Mountain recognised and not logged. And that's made a big difference in the way I see country. And in when I came to do... The, walk through the valleys out the back of Maruya beyond the Mountains of the Moon there. Um, it was fantastic for me to go and talk to the people at Wallaga Lake about my experiences and they helped make sense of a lot of the things which I didn't otherwise comprehend, um, especially talking about the Dulagar and, and things like that that w- were Part of the countryside there um, i've I've got this map which shows some of the the uh, country so that's Bateman's Bay up there, so when I started my walking, I came down through this valley and walking up into the ranges either side of it. Can you hear me still if I turn away from the microphone <laughs> Good. uh and I walked down through there, all through this country. Uh, that's Balaura, inland of Badala, and Spring Mountain. And there's all sorts of amazing Aboriginal places through this country. And then down into the Wadbiliga, which is extraordinary country and full of stories. Um, and that was this first one that I spent 12 months in the wild country. Okay. and Camping out? Yeah. Okay. Um, And then more lately I walked from – the blue line is the Bundian Way going from Kosciuszko through down to Eden, which is – we call it a shared history pathway um, because it sort of acknowledges the the old, the deep history and it uses an Aboriginal thing and also – the way the Aboriginal people were dispossessed and how a lot of those early settlers using the country used the old Aboriginal pathways and how, how the Aboriginal people very often welcomed the white people into the country and, and regarded the sheep, for example, as an extra asset for the <laughs> Aboriginal people. And at first they didn't mind the Aboriginal people taking a, a few head of sheep, but then during some of those terrible droughts uh, in the late 1900s, they suddenly didn't want the Aboriginal people to take any of their stock and the Aboriginal people were horrified that suddenly they'd been sharing all of their crop, their kangaroos and everything mm-hmm. with the white whitefellas. Why should the white fellows withdraw their support? And then the fences went up and the dispossession was perfected. Uh, um,
2: how did you first hear about the pathway, the Bundian Way, and the Bundian Pass, which s- sounded a bit mythical at first, the idea of this pass? Uh, when? The, when was the, that? The,
1: there were people at Wallaga Lake, old people, and I met a man, Uncle Percy Mumbula, at Wallaga Lake and had... I just got on with him very beautifully and he was a man who even though you could drive, he would prefer to walk and while I was there, he often walked from Wreck Bay down to to, to Wallaga Lake and he loved the old ways that people used to walk and Gabu Ted Thomas too, for example, told me the Wallaga Lake, had a renowned Gumleaf band, and they would go and play at various places. They used to go up to Cooma, mm-hmm. for example, and play at the Cooma Show, play Gumleaf there. And some of their repertoire were spiritual and hymns, and some of them were old Aboriginal songs. And he told me how the Walliga gum, gum Leaf Gumleaf Band went from Wallaga Lake to Cooma and showed me the way across country that they went. Mm-hmm. And I was then able to check that as against maps and some of the first surveyors' work and confirmed that this was also the way a lot of the early settlers went and then went right back into the history and saw how the first settlers used those Aboriginal tracts yeah. that were still being used yeah. in, in living yeah. memory.
2: But you had to do a fair bit of research to figure out you Know where the path was, and, and then some exploration of your own together with like paper based research. You know, it wasn't just a nice walk,
1: yeah, through no, the hillsides.
2: We, it, it looks pretty tough country, a lot of them,
1: yeah. So, we had to we found the surveyed lines on the maps, and sometimes with gaps or little bits. And in survey, we walked, we walked all of that country, and we found along the actual old walking routes the ancient walking routes they were just artifacts the whole way it, at first we were thought it was like a series of sites but as we walked there'd be one pile of artifacts here another one there mm-hmm. another one there and we just followed these artifact trails mm-hmm. which were uh, amazing so the guys said sometimes when the bush they get a bit of scrub and the Guy said to me, "Look, we can tell when we're on the track it's kind of it's it's a funny experience, but it's like a sensation that it's right it's it's as if they said that the track is singing to you mm-hmm. as you're going and it keeps you on track and if you mm. if you get off a bit you, you know when you're off track mm. and it's beautiful country yeah. it's, it's such beautiful country to go through yeah.
2: mm. you, you, you use the phrase shared history can you talk a bit more about that and um I mean, you've told some of the stories already perhaps of what, you know, some of the stories you've uncovered along the way, the process of walking it and researching it and talking to people um, and what you mean by that, a shared history. And
1: yeah, so t- traditional history tends to ignore the Aboriginal people altogether, although the new history uh, ac- ac- accepts Aboriginal people. And in, in a lot of cases... it recognises Aboriginal sites and it says, this is an Aboriginal site, that's mm-hmm. an Aboriginal site. And we had the view that we shouldn't just be recognising the country as a series of sites on a big database, but it runs over the whole country. <laughs> and all of those individual sites join up in some way and often in very different ways. And, and, and we found it was full of revelations to to start joining up the sites and how the story added up. So we were using the traditional cultural stories that that old elders like Uncle Ozzie Cruz, that um, Uncle Gabu Ted Thomas had about the country, but also we were using history, um, going through the old settler's papers going through all the first surveys um, of of the country. Um, So a a lot of the problems the Aboriginal people had with, with forestry and people not acknowledging Aboriginality in the country is exemplified by how Uncle Gabu, Ted Thomas, when I first met him in, in early 1970s, was deeply upset that, to, that they had blasted some sacred rocks on top of Mumbula Mountain to put a television aerial there. Um, and it brought television to the region. But he was so upset that these special sacred rocks had been blasted. And when I researched it, when I found... In the papers of the first surveyor to go onto Mumbula Mountain and survey the mountain, I found in the beginning of his sketchbook, this is a very prosaic man. He's very prosaic and he just measures distances and three rods, five roots mm-hmm. to this rock. Um, he had a drawing in it and it was a drawing called Rocks on Top of Mumbula Mountain mm-hmm. and... It was a beautiful little sketch of just some rocks kind of capping the mountain and he was so moved that he actually drew that Mm. and nearby one of his notes said, um, drawings on tree as if by Aboriginal people. (laughs) And these little things give you clues on how well and fully the countryside was used and Mm. how special places were acknowledged and we've got to use these tools of history yeah. to to reinforce that aboriginal recognition of the country how special it is
2: well i like your idea of um putting the stories together you know to show mm. a more complete the, the whole story the whole history mm. um so helping the idea that walking this pathway um, can piece together history and story and kind of shared history too. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of in England how the hollow ways and the old ways are so celebrated at the moment, and it, it's a th- sort of a pilgrimage to walk these old ways. I mean, is that something we should be doing in this country? Acknowledge like the Corn Trail. I've walked. I found it um, quite a moving experience. Just knowing some of just a little bit of that history and the, having the feeling that so many people have have walked. That way before to follow that path, mm. um, you know, is it something not just history but something in, in the spirit as well. Mm.
1: the The whole of the country was used in over the years. the The coast is just a. Momentary flash mm-hmm. in the geological sca- scheme of things, so the none of the middens we see now are much older than six thousand years, because of the rise of the sea waters. But the Aboriginal country extended way back out to the edge of the continental shelf, and that's where some of the most ancient um, uh, sites are to be found, yeah. and. People still in a lot of the stories acknowledge that it's a country and it's a temporary arrangement people <laughs> have made to, to live in other clans' country.
2: It's um, certainly a good way to keep things in perspective. You know, our um, settlers, very white, uh, very white, but also very brief, relatively brief history. You know, it's nothing um, compared to the history of this continent. I mean, that's good to remember sometimes when we're getting anxious about very minor matters very um, self-centred matters.
1: Yeah. So in, in these mountains, in all of these mountains, there yeah. are most amazing Aboriginal places and you can be in the middle of nowhere and you'll come onto a flat place and there'll be a particular site. There are stone arrangements. There yeah. are artefact scatters. In places like Bendethra, it's, it's a big Aboriginal place and And there's a book round now about the the Hall gang um, of bush rangers who operated from up round Araluan and up on the Tablelands there. Uh, And it's a pity that that book doesn't go into the Aboriginal history Mm -hmm. too because they worked with the Hall gang to a certain extent and the Irish people who who lived on the outskirts of the big uh, spreads that were up there, the big cattle runs and sheep runs. And the Aboriginal people identified with the old Irish Mm -hmm. and the old Scots people, the old sheep herders and crofters. And they got on quite well and helped each other And there are a fantastic lot of stories there which aren't told much these days and I would love to see more told about that. More Aboriginal Australia, it it becomes richer as you look at the deep history.
2: Yeah. So you did a lot of consultation as part of this process but also in putting together the book. I mean in representing in print, you know, these um, shared histories, the whole history as, as I would call it. Um, can you talk a bit about the consultation process you went through and, you know, just thinking about the, the whole Bushranger book, you know, why do, when we approach history, why do we do these separate histories? You know, is there a, a protocol or a way we could be approaching writing about place in this country?
1: I, I guess when, when I started doing this first big walk, uh, there's a whole lot of publicity about it and that was on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald, and Channel 9 said, we want to do a film of you doing this. And I said, oh. I said, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm a writer, I want to go into the bush and see what it's like to live in the deep bush. Maybe for without a, long time a film without crew. People. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then they said, look, we'll tell you what we're going to do. When you finish the thing after you've been a year in the wilds, we're going to bring a helicopter down and we're going to have a beautiful girl come out wearing a very slender bikini <laughs> and she will have a tray with champagne on it <laughs> and beautiful <laughs> foods and she'll walk over towards you and we want to film the look on your face as you, given all the, all the bounties of civilization.
2: So when I asked you for a protocol of what we should do, that's about
1: what we should not do, (laughs) what not to do. And I said, no, I'm not going to, I will not put up with that. And this is making my whole thing seem ridiculous. And they said, we don't care. We will find you and we're going to do it. (laughs) And so I I spent this whole year kind of wondering how they were going to find me. (laughs) And and they'd actually given me a date and a time when they were going to come into the the, the bush. And at right at the end of this walk, this backcountry walk, I was here in the Bega Valley. And this is the Brogo here, which is a very, very wild, amazing place full of the most fantastic plants and creatures. And I thought... They'll never find me here. And I went, <laughs> on the day and time, I went right into this sort of deep gorge country. <laughs> on the run. I thought, they won't find me here. All, they could put down a helicopter there. And so I found a bit of a cave and it had a hole in it. So I went for a swim and I was swimming in the, in the river <laughs> when, when they didn't find me. <laughs> Yeah.
2: So were they crossed? Did you end up having to be filmed drinking champagne in some studio set somewhere?
1: No, we, we let that pass. We let it so pass. So oh, wow. I, I told national parks, don't let them get in touch with me. <laughs> and that they were my go-betweens. So I there, there were a whole lot of things that I found. We might click through some slides. So... That's a, a map of some of the current walks uh, and it shows this is the country mostly that I've walked, the corn trails up here, Monga National Park, and I've done all of this country quite fully. And mm-hmm. this is what it looks like from some of the mountains way back. There's the beautiful mountain Gulaga and These places back up where I was, I saw them as teaching places because I learnt so much about the countryside when I looked down on it from these amazing peaks across the range. Um, And the flowers were fantastic along the way. We found I I had to keep going back year after year (laughs) because we kept... we found lots of plants and I would tell these botanists we'd go in and check and we found all of these new species, but some of them so gorgeous like the grevilleas there and the styphelia's and things. All up in that magic country, there's lots of swamps that interlink along the range. And, uh, and this is beautiful eucalyptus stenostoma, which is my favourite plant. It's the most gorgeous eucalypt, the the red on the new Mm -hmm. growing tips and the silver of those.
2: On the round thumbs.
1: Yeah, it's it's quite gorgeous. And this is the kind of places we went. This is Turos Gorge and you've got to know how to get through the country um, to avoid this kind of place. Mm -hmm. But growing, I had to check out all of these cliffs and things, and growing along all of those cliff tops were eucalyptus stenostoma and another very rare tree called uh, Wadbiliga ash. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so they have quite um, narrow ranges of habitat. Yeah. it's not the right word for trees. But, yeah, they grow in very limited areas.
1: Yeah. Those species. So yeah. the main country I've written about is the country south of the sandstone country. And this country has got sandstone, but it's a different sandstone to the Sydney sandstone. And this is the kind of Brogo country where Mm -hmm. you've got shallow ridges that are often only only like a razor edge, and you walk across them hooked on with your boot heels. (laughs) And uh, these are what the eucalyptus stenostoma look like when they're... uh, Fully grown in their own habitat, okay. um, and rare trees like this that grow around the the some of the swamps. And then along the top of the range, you get places like this where there's all sorts of special eucalypts there, acacias there. Um, and amazing Aboriginal places up through the sandstone country there, um, and the country drops away a thousand metres, mm-hmm. almost straight down into the the valleys. Mm-hmm. And in what well, in the deepest Brogo, I found that this was a new species of plant we found, which are acacias that grow up over thirty metres tall. They've got silver foliage. Um, and fantastic wood and they only grow in that brogo catchment so part of my exploration as i came to go further south was to see if there are any of these going mm. further south okay. and there weren't mm-hmm. and oh, wow. we came to a place called bega swamp and this was such a turning point in my in these adventures and i'm looking at the plants and the animals and getting the old stories together. And I saw this. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's that's an Aboriginal scar in the tree, Kuliman scar. And it's a place called Bega Swamp, but it's right on the, up on the edge of the Great Divide, overlooking the Brogo and the Bega Valley. And some streams run west out of it and some run south and some run east. Mm-hmm. And... It's a really special place, and there were scientists who did core studies there in the swamp, and and without going into them, it shows you the history of of how there were no eucalypts there at first, and during the the great ice age before the most recent one, and how. The eucalypts only came after the most recent ice age by reading the pollens in the Mm. deepest layers of the swamps and how burning started at certain, severe burning started at certain stages. And it gives you an idea of the layers of geological history through the area. But it always stuck in my mind that this is, it's really important to see this sort of work of Aboriginal handiwork here and I was speaking with some of the elders down on the coast and I said I found this scar tree up on Bega swamp one of the old women said I we used to go up there when I was a little girl and we'd go up in the summertime and we'd eat these roots that tasted they tasted like apples mm-hmm. and she said we used to love them and there was no food down here and we got the food up there and during the depression, her family went up there and used this place and they'd stay up there for a month or two and they would dig. There were yam daisies there, but there were all other sort of yams there. There were uh, vanilla lily yams and bulbine lily yams. It's easy country to dig in. And this is beautiful. It tells you how people enjoyed the country. Yeah. Um, and, and how not being tied down meant you could um, enjoy so much more of the country. Mm. And in many ways, this led me into the other adventures of the other books.
2: Okay. Yeah. I like that phrase you used, learning places. Mm. You know, looking at mountains as learning places, which of course we all should. Mm. Um, and you have a lot of knowledge about geology and um, botany, wildlife. Um, do, do, does someone need that much knowledge to go in to these beautiful wild places and, and view them as learning places? I mean, ha, what can we learn from you? You know, what can the audience learn from you about that approach? Um, not necessarily having your knowledge. I mean, you've acquired that knowledge over a long period of time. Mm. But is is it about how how one approaches walking?
1: I, I think it's just the beginning. I think it's just... just <laughs> The beginning, what I've found out is just the beginning and people can build on it and build on it. And I, there are young people being trained to be able to talk much more fluently about this than me in the years to come. And it's great to think that we're passing on this body of knowledge to, mm. to other people. Mm. Uh, and uh, so that's, uh, that's the Bundian way about 390 kilometres and this mm. is sort of up on the high country looking down and even though it's a bit hazy from here you can see the Away goes out here along the range that way mm. and if you were going to sing the song of it we'd say it goes just north of the pile at here it goes just north of Tingaringi Mountain, there, it goes. Just north of Delegate Hill, there, and then you can see earlier in the morning over here, you can see White Rock Mountain, or part of the Coolangubra, um, and it goes just south of there. And on the very stillest morning before the eucalyptus start pumping out there, their, their um, blue uh, oils you can see balawan or mount imlay down above twofold bay and from here you can look right down to the ocean basically and it's it looks so simple yeah. <laughs> the the snowy river is down along there and you can't just go over that edge it's <laughs> it's like that turos gorge you know <laughs> there's mighty cliffs and yeah. and the stream is Gorgeous and very difficult to pass through. Mm. And
2: so, can anyone just go and walk the Bundian Way? What's hap- where is it at?
1: Um, it's we haven't publicised the route at the moment, or and we've been working with national parks and state forests and the councils and everybody to make it a safe route and make it an environmentally sensitive route that doesn't go through special places. Mm. And it could conceivably open officially within a year. Um, It depends on getting some money from the government too because as you go across the Monero, there are some uh, grasslands and we use for campsites places that were the traditional Aboriginal campsites and which the Bullockies started using when transportation began in the 1850s. And these places were then uh, designated by the government as special resting places and they became travelling stock reserves and and they're called still on the maps and everything, travelling stock reserve and camping place. Mm. And we, we use a lot of these because they're, they're full of artefacts, all of these things. It's easily to see why they were Aboriginal places. Um, and people can would be able to camp at these places, but they're on grassland. And if you've got a few people camping there, you don't want cars driving past as people have to go to the <laughs> toilet and things. And so we would hope to put toilets on some of these places where there's no other shelter and and then we've got debates between the council saying, "Oh you've got to use pump out no, you've got to use um, organic types or and all of these discussions are going on towards having everything um, good to have a good professional walking route that people are safe it's not easy but, and it's a great challenge mm. and it, it will give work to a lot of people and recognition to a lot of aboriginal people who wouldn't otherwise have it and uh and we're looking forward to that happening
2: yeah
1: um, this is what it looks like in some of the wildest places it's still used by all the wombats and
2: yeah.
1: kangaroos and Brumbies use it. And there are too many Brumbies there. We'd love to see the Brumby numbers reduced. It's like a disrespecting of Aboriginal heritage to call the Brumbies heritage animals <laughs> when they're destroying a lot of Aboriginal heritage. Um Oh, so at one point when I was going through with the guys, they they saw a cat up in a tree. They said, look, there's a cat. We went over and we tried to get the cat out and I'm there with my arm in the tree trying to pull it out of the hollow. We couldn't get it out. And I said, look, I'm going to light some grass, a bundle of grass, and I'm going to drop it in the tree. When the cat comes out, we'll dong it on the head because we don't want cats here in the middle of the wilderness. They're eating all the little animals and birds and things, and there are too many here. One of the guys said, no, we can't do that because if we cause a bushfire, they'll blame us for it, <laughs> and and that'll hold us in disrespect, and so we should. And we went away, we went down to the snowy and did this and that, and we came back up, and as we come back, the guy said, oh, look, there's that cat again. And we stopped, and I dashed over, and as as I... I was going to take a photograph of it. And as I took a photograph, the cat fell out of the tree. I said, that cat just <laughs> fell out of the tree. And the guy said, oh, cats don't fall out of trees. <laughs> we went up and there was a dead cat on the ground beside the tree. We were mystified by this. We walked all around the tree and and I found another dead cat. And then there was another dead cat and there was one that was really sick. And and we thought, what the hell? We were standing around this tree, I'm closer than to Inga, and suddenly out of the grass beside us came this tiger snake and it climbed up the tree. I've never seen a snake climbing a tree. It was amazing the way it tensed its body and got up. And it went into one of the hollows where we'd first seen the cat and out and up into another hollow, and we were just boggled by seeing this <laughs> snake. And one of the guys says, "Yeah, go on, John. Put your arm in and see if <laughs> yeah, you can find any more cats." But these are the things that sort of inspire you, I guess. And and the guy said to me when we we're sitting around the campfire that night, and they say, "See." Do you reckon nature can't take care of itself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a fantastic yeah. discussion about that.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, it, it was an amazing experience for all of us doing yeah. that. Yeah. yeah and through the Monero, on the southern Monero, it, it cut right, runs right along the southernmost edges of the Monero. And then it goes off the easiest way off the Monero. Down into the tall forests, mm. and uh, it's incredibly beautiful, and it's a great change. So, I've had people who are absolute experts on these things say to me, "The Bundian Way would be have to be the most beautiful walk in the world, because it's the most varied. Mm. You're going from the highest part of the country, from the snow, snow heath country." down through mountain gums, through snow gums, down to the Snowy River, which is such a rich area. I mean, it's, it's like an Aboriginal city there with all the, the – the, it's a pity Uncle Ozzy wasn't here. He, he would have given you this other side of the Bundian mm. Way and how people populated all of that country.
2: Then
1: mm. I mean, across the southernmost grasslands of the Monero and woodlands then you come off the easiest way, off the Monero, down into these tall forests. And there are trails through these tall forests. And and we found, even in these tall forests, we found middens and things. And we found, in, in 1987, there were, National Park's people searching for the long-footed potaroo mm. which was said to be the most rarest mammal in the world. Mm. And they were searching for it. And they came upon uh, a very s- substantial scatter of artefacts in the forest. Mm. And it was bulldozed by forestry the next day at a time when they were fighting the forest wars and they were saying, no, if the greenies said this was a wilderness, they'd go in and they'd put a logging coop right in the middle of that wilderness to sort of stop the greenies taking the forests. But this caused a terrible stir and in 1987 the Sydney Morning Herald said forestry bulldozers, mm-hmm. southeastern mm-hmm. Australia's most important Aboriginal heritage site <laughs> and it caused all sorts of to- to-do And since that day, forestry never bulldozed a coop or a road or anything unless they've surveyed it for Aboriginal sites and that's a good thing.
2: It is a good thing. John, um, we need to open up to some questions. I think people will be keen to ask you some questions. The Kosciuszko area, um,
1: Bogong moths collected there every summer I Believe I grew up in the area and this is the history that I've been told, is that what attracted Aboriginal people up that way from the coast? Oh, the, the, the Bogong Bogong's one of the reasons that the Aboriginal people gathered around the high country in the early summer and they, they would have ceremonies and trade and sharing and stories and big gathering special sp- special things would happen and they would go up and they could get great big cakes of... that. They would gather the bogongs off the walls of the caves and carry them back to the fires. Has anyone eaten bogongs? Mm-hmm. They're, they're delicious. <laughs> it's fantastic. <coughs> you... you it's especially if you put them on the ashes and rake them around a bit with a stick and then pull them off, all the wings and the legs burn off and they come out like a kind of cashew mm-hmm. and they're crunchy and they're delicious. They're better than cashews, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any
2: more questions about what we can eat? <laughs> I'm
1: getting
2: hungry again already. <laughs> um, after all that's happened over the last 200 years, it seems amazing that there is still such a depth of Aboriginal knowledge existing um, to what extent I guess is that still being kept and passed down to coming generations so that that knowledge doesn't disappear
1: which seems a risk yeah what one of the things that have motivated me through this is that that knowledge is going on down to the young people and it's for them to make use of, and I know other Aboriginal communities have been recognising other walking routes, and the people up in the Bunya Mountains, for example, are doing special things about the pathways they walk to the to the Bunya Maps to the Bunya festivals. Um, That's there's, there's a woman called Isabel McBride who is one of our great Archaeologists who who did surveyed tracks that people, Aboriginal people, walk from North Queensland, and and brought peturi right down across the deserts down to the near the Flinders Ranges, and they would trade the peturi for ochre, and it was the very best ochre that anybody knew of, and it made you shine better, and that These stories are beautiful, showing all the connections and the important trading things between people. Um, at the Eden Land Council's offices, there's a stone hatchet, a greenstone hatchet, that was found beside the Tuomba River, roughly on the Bundian Way, and we thought it must have come from the greenstone <laughs> deposits near Tumut. But Isabel surveyed it and looked at it and said petrological tests showed it that was from Mount William, northwest of Melbourne, and it had either been traded or brought from for 800 kilometres back down to the Toowoomba River. And it's fantastic to think of this kind of Mm -hmm. commerce that happened way back in years gone by that and I hope this is the sort of thing we can acknowledge in the countryside and the links between mm. Aboriginal people.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, hi, John. Um, I've read your book; found it very interesting. I originally trained as a surveyor, and, and I know there's a wealth of information in those original, you know, old surveyors' field notes, which is I found in your book. You you mentioned a lot of that um, things about the landscape and the the trees and the uh, forests and some of the Aboriginal. Um, influences that were noted but my question really is what does the bundian way mean again i've forgotten you might have mentioned it in your book it's what was good. the name bundian um, refer to
1: so the one of the first white fellows to come into the country wrote about probably a clan who spoke tawa in in a valley in the upper Genoa River, which is the river that runs out at Malakuta. Um, and it was called Bundiang. And the people who lived there were called the Bundiang Mitong. And they were right on the edge of the uh, Bitterool country and on the edge of the Monero country. And the Bundiway mostly follows that route. So we gave it the historic name that of the pass that we followed down, which is the easiest way off the Monero, which was the Bundian Pass. And that Bundi then at one time got on the maps being spelt as Bundi but spelt like Bondi. And there was a community lived at Bondi. And after World War I, the the forestry decided they needed more trees to make Australia sustainable at times of war and they took all this land to become Bondi State Forest and they had a township in Bondi and it got confused with Bondi Mm -hmm. Beach in Sydney and so they dropped the name and it became then Rockton and we're keeping that old pass um, acknowledged. It was written as a county road, it was an Aboriginal road well before the settlers came and it went from the Monero down towards malacuta and East Gippsland as well as swung round towards Eden. And uh, all these connections are really important. People know generally too the ways where it's obviously routes that people used to walk like the way up Sassafras to Neriga to the mountains, um, the corn Trail routes, the, the routes along the Dewa River to, to go from the coast to the mountains. Oh, beautiful ways to go. Wonderful to acknowledge this sort of Aboriginal history. Hello John, my name's David. Thank you for what you're doing.
0: Um, seems to me with your legal background you're in a good position to comment on ongoing protection when when you start to popularize this, this type of um, track and country? And do I assume that it's mainly crown land or is some of it freehold land? And how, how do you see this uh, beautiful area being properly protected while at the same time opening it up?
1: Yeah, so I see this sort of thing as, as a beginning in a way and I would love to see the Aboriginal people recognised nationally as the first people. I would love to see, like, the Uluru Statement put into effect. Mm-hmm. I, it, it, For me, I feel only richer the more that Aboriginal history and stories are recognised. I love the idea of having a Makarata where we have, a, like, a truth-telling set of stories, and I think, it's so important that we do tell all these stories yeah. and and have it as a dialogue. And if Ozzy had been here and he's really disappointed he couldn't be here, um, he would have told you all of this, this other richer side. Um, it would be one of the things we've been talking about lately is that it? it's one of the great ways to recognise the Aboriginality of the country is to... Um, recognise the richness of the country, um, recognise the physical country rather than talking in terms of ownership or not ownership. Mm -hmm. And if we say that this bounty of landscape is Aboriginal, it's like there was a big gathering on the Long Plain in Kosciuszko a couple of months ago where elders came from everywhere And they said, we shouldn't be recognising the heritage of Brumbies. We should be recognising the Aboriginal heritage. And we should be recognising these rivers, Aboriginal rivers, and we should keep them flowing. And it's important for the people, and it's much more important that it flows for the people than for a few farmers and and for people to recognise Brumbies because they're destroying the headwaters and the swamps that, let the water trickle out slowly. Mm. And I like the idea of forming a treaty, mm. but one that's sort of country-based and landscape-based. Mm. And probably in times of climate stress, the old Aboriginal stories and maps and, and law. Tells us how to manage country, and we should look at that. We should listen to the this Aboriginal culture. It's so important.
2: Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. I think we have to leave it there, but um, could you join me in thanking John for your great talk? <laughs>
0: Dropping a new episode of Storyfest 2019 at the beginning of every month around the same time that they release their newsletter. To find out more about Storyfest, head over to their website www.storyfest.org.au. To listen to all of our Rights for Festival episodes from all of our awesome regional writing festivals, including Scone Literary Festival, Feminist Writers Festival, Mudgee Readers Festival, National Young Writers Festival, and of course Storyfest, head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals, and make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your pods. Please like, share, You know, do all the communal things, tell people about us and give us a hoi if you have a festival coming up that you'd like us to record and be a part of. Thank you for listening, sharing and supporting regional writing festivals. This podcast was produced, recorded and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting.